Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not offended by what happened at the White House this past week, if you're not offended by the in-your-face tactics of the LGBTQ mafia, there's something wrong with you, and you should worry. You should worry about yourself and about your own soul. You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debate, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're going to be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. So that's, as I'm sure most of you know, that is the Pride Day, the Alphabet Mafia's Pride Day at the White House. The White House where they put the gay pride, LGBTQ flag uh, on the, uh, the White House there. And it, of course, it's an utter abomination. I mean, it is an utter abomination. This was meant to offend the American people. Indeed, it was meant as, a, as an in-your-face gesture. It's a, it's a flag. Of, putting that flag on the White House was a flag of conquest. It was planting a flag and saying, I mean, you can almost hear Queen's Freddie Mercury singing, We Are the Champions, which is, by the way, a gay anthem as it was intended to be. So how are we to make sense of this? So in this podcast, we're not, we're not just expressing our outrage. We wanna give you a sense of the ideas that are driving it. Because I know that many of you are asking the question, you know, what's going on? How can this possibly make any sense? And to just look at it from afar, it doesn't make any sense. But I assure you that they are following a game plan, they're following a strategy, a warp strategy, a warped game plan, but they're actually following one. You know what I'm actually reminded of? Um, as I've said in other episodes of this podcast, my mission in life, my mission in this podcast is to demolish arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And the LGBTQ ideology is at its core, it is satanic. It sets itself up not just simply against the knowledge of God, it is a, sets itself up as a rival to it, as, a, as, a, uh, uh, as an alternate object of worship. They want your worship. They demand your worship. Now, what this reminds me of is a bit of ancient literature known as the Old Testament, and specifically 
Daniel chapter 5. Now stick with me in this. In Daniel chapter 5, you have the story of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar is referred to as, as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, whether he was his son or his grandson or a son in the sense of somewhere down the line isn't very clear to us. But the point is, he is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar and he knows the story of Nebuchadnezzar and how God both blessed and punished Nebuchadnezzar. What Belshazzar does is he's having a feast one night, a party. Sounds like a wild party, the kind that you would throw in, let's say, New Orleans or in Amsterdam. And it says that he's celebrating with his wives and his concubines and his guests, and he's showing off. And he orders that the vessels, which had been taken out of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem during Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem, he orders that the vessels of gold and silver that were taken out of the temple and put into the Babylonians' um, treasury. He says, bring them out, bring them out that we might drink from them. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is something very, excuse me, what Belshazzar is doing is something very similar to this. It's an act of conquest. It's an, it's an in your face act, not just against the, the people of Israel. It is an in your face act against God himself. Bring his vessels that we may drink from them, that we may party so he's desecrating them with his debauched party. You picture women you know, going around taking selfies, you know, and this kind of thing, if they could have. You, you picture people like in this video who are half naked, you know, wandering around at the pool party and everybody getting drunk. It is an interesting passage because it's pointing out that the goal was to desecrate the things of God. And then it says a hand appeared and began writing on the wall. So you know this is where we get the term, the writing is on the wall. It's obvious. The writing is on the wall. It's over. That's what that, that's what that phrase means. We say that the writing is on the wall. The reason I think of that passage, I hope is obvious to you, because that's what's going on here. And all the more so because where the God of the Bible showed patience, let's say with the Ninevites, who knew the truth insofar as Romans 2.15 says that God has written his law upon all our hearts. We all have a conscience. We all have a vague sense of right and wrong. They didn't know the biblical story. They didn't know the biblical God. And God decided he would not render final judgment against them until they had heard it. And hence the reason he sent Jonah to them. But his judgment against Belshazzar was made all the harsher because Belshazzar knew the truth and he rejected it. Now, that is the truth of people like Joe Biden. Joe Biden pretends to be a Catholic, says he is. Who does this in their own home, much less at the White House? Can you imagine previous presidents, say before Bill Clinton, how they would react to something like this at the White House. I'm thinking that most guests at the White House, a woman would have been shocked if she had been told, your slip is showing, much less if she's topless. Or you got a tranny, you know, running around with, you know, not wearing a shirt and with fake breasts. This is what's going on there. Who knows what these people are doing in the Lincoln bedroom? Who knows what they were doing in the Oval Office? And the rumors are they were doing quite a lot. The idea being to desecrate those places that if they're not holy and sacred in the biblical sense, they have a certain uh, reverence in, the, in, in our history. The Lincoln bedroom, the White House, they were referred to as, that's America's house. That belongs to the American people. And it has, in the national sense, a kind of sacred place of honor in our history. And now you have people coming and hanging this flag off of it. The Biden administration did it deliberately. And it is an in-your-face gesture. An in-your-face gesture meant to offend you, meant to desecrate the very things that you would hold dear. Biden himself, Jill Biden are in that video. It wasn't like they were away and they were, you know, on a, you know, on a state visit in Europe or something and came back and said, didn't realize what was going on at the White House. Look at what the kids did when we were away. They had a keg party. 
That's not what happened. They knew full well and they gave, they gave approval to it. Romans chapter 1, which I have made and will continue to make frequent reference to on this show. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. At the end of that passage, it says they not only do evil things, wicked things, but they give approval to those who also do them. Listen, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. But sometimes people say that as a way of kind of trivializing real sin. Ah, well, we all sin. Everybody sin. I think God is with you if, if you're a sinner out there who actually struggles with your sin. You struggle with your sin. You struggle to, to stop gossiping. You struggle uh, to not be a glutton. You struggle not to be greedy. You struggle not to be unkind with your words. You're struggling. That is to say you're contending against your sin. That tells me the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Where the Holy Spirit has ceased to be at work in you is when you give yourself over to your sin and you no longer struggle and contend with it. And where you are really entered the danger zone, where the meter is in the red, and where God's wrath burns hot against you is where not only are you not struggling with your sin and you've given yourself over to it, but now you are trying to bring other people into it and give approval to it. And see, that is what the LGBT community has done. So when I hear people say that, oh, homosexuality, um, transgenderism, I mean, it's a sin like any other sin. <laughs> no, it isn't. The Bible speaks of homosexuality of a special class of sin, and it's because it's an assault on nature. It is a perversion of nature. This is Romans 1, where the Apostle Paul says, they turned their natural, um, what should I say, their natural desires for the opposite sex to their own sex. Men, men um, committing shameless acts with other men and women doing the same thing. So, in other words, homosexuality is an assault on the image of God because it is a perversion of nature. Does not nature itself teach you that this is wrong? Doesn't it tell you that flange goes with slotte? Doesn't nature itself teach you this? So it's important that you understand this, this kind of perversion that we're seeing. But now we're seeing it against children. We're seeing it against children. So the question becomes, how did we get here? And how are, we to, how are we to navigate the avalanche of alphabet mafia propaganda that's flooding the culture? And it is flooding the culture in a very big way. You see it everywhere. You see it in education. You see it in entertainment. You now see it in the White House. Did you see that this past week a man who was praying at a transgender rally was arrested? Excuse me, he was preaching. I'm sure he prayed too. But he was preaching. He was arrested. Now, they dropped the charges. But the point is, while all this perversion was taking place in public, and I mean, you can find videos of this, and this is perverse, perverse stuff that is taking place in public with children. But a man comes along and he begins to preach the gospel, which, by the way, is an act of compassion. It's an act of compassion because that man is saying to you, you are headed towards self-destruction, the way you are going. You are about to run into the teeth of an angry God. But they arrested him, just like the woman who was praying silently outside of an abortion clinic in London, you know, maybe, I don't know, three, four or five months ago. They arrested her. She wasn't saying anything. She was standing very peacefully, silently, didn't say anything to people who were going in and out of the place. She just stood there. Her eyes weren't even closed. But the police asked her, what are you doing? And she said, I'm just standing here. And they said, are you praying? She said, I might be. She was arrested for her thoughts. They suspected that she harbored anti-abortion thoughts. And they arrested her. This is what's going on. Did you see that 
I don't know, maybe it was this week, the so-called human rights campaign. Did you guys see this? It's incredible. The so-called human rights campaign declared a, quote, state of emergency for the LGBTQ community. State of emergency. And news media picked up on this and ran with this like, you know, we were facing a Holocaust for LGBTQ people. And um, they, <laughs> the, the headline said, for the first time in their four decades long history, the human rights campaign has declared a state of emergency for the LGBT community. Have you even seen, I've seen, I've seen signs and t-shirts that say, stop trans genocide. Have you seen this? Stop trans genocide is pushing a narrative of victimhood that's a complete lie. Who's loading them up on boxcars and sending them to concentration camps? Where's that happening? Who's lining them up against a wall and shooting them? Is that happening somewhere? The answer, of course, is no. It isn't happening. These are, these are quite the opposite. These are people who are hanging their perverted flag on the White House. And that brings me to another point that resonates with Daniel chapter 5. Little thought that occurred to me right here, and that is, again, they want to pervert everything in the culture, and they want to pervert the things of God. Hence the reason they chose the rainbow. The rainbow is a Christian symbol. It is a Christian symbol of God's forgiveness and his promise never to flood the earth again. That's why they chose it. They chose it to pervert it, to turn it into their pagan meaning. They're pagan and perverse. The stop trans um, genocide is offensive for a variety of reasons. First, because it's a lie, but second, because it trivializes real genocides. It trivializes real genocides, as does the claim to civil rights. Gay civil rights, LGBTQ civil rights, the uh, trans trans civil rights that that trivializes the real civil rights of you know the the movement of Martin Luther King Jr. It trivializes it, waters it down so that it becomes less significant and meaningful, because you have people who are claiming victimhood who are not themselves victims. Joe Biden tweeted. Or let me put it this way. The person who handles this Twitter account, there's no way that Joe Biden is doing his own tweeting. Someone else is tweeting on his behalf. But he tweeted that trans people were being persecuted and kicked out of restaurants. That they are being persecuted. That they needed their own Bill of Rights. And the, the presidential account of Joe Biden issued a, um, a trans bill of rights that they're working on. And really what this means is it's a way of saying that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the laws of the land, they're not enough. They deserve a special category of laws that are just for them. Meaning they, to be, they deserve to be treated not as actual citizens of this country are treated, but to have their own special category of rights. So that if you criticize them, if you question them, if you protest them, you better watch out. It means they're coming for you. It means they're going to persecute you. It means they're going to try to shut you down, shut you up, cancel you, arrest you, suppress your civil liberties. That is what this is about. Let's be clear. Transgenderism isn't a real thing. You cannot transcend your sex. You are male or female. Period. You pretend to be something. Other. I could pretend to be a woman and tell all of you that you need to use my preferred pronouns, that you all have to play along in my fantasy world. I could tell all of you that I'm a dog. I could tell all of you that I'm a horse, that I'm a spaceman, that I'm a surgeon, and that all of you have to play along with the fantasy. But the reality is you can't transcend your sex. You are what you are. But they're claiming that they deserve a special category of rights. Now, a decade ago, when Duck Dynasty patriarch Phil Robertson was under fire for comments that he made about homosexuality, I came to his defense with a piece that went viral in The Atlantic. 
yes, the Atlantic. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, you know, now when I, when I think about it. But some of you will remember this. Duck Dynasty at the time was a massive success, the TV show. And Phil Robertson, um, I think he was hunting with a, a writer from, I think it was GQ. I'm not, sh I'm not sure who the writer was, and I'm not certain of the magazine, but I think it was with GQ. And Robertson has said during that hunt, I don't, I don't think he realized he was being quoted in this, but he spoke rather bluntly about homosexuality, and he said he didn't accept it. And he went on to say, in you know, terms that went something like this, I just say, you look at a woman and you see what she has to offer, and she has to offer more. Robertson was just stating very flatly, I'm not interested in sex with a man. It makes no sense. It, the, the engineering of that doesn't actually even work. A woman. It's natural. It makes sense. The next thing you know, you had groups like GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, GLAD, coming out and saying they were condemning him and expressing shock and horror. Couldn't believe that he was saying this. And so I came along with an article in The Atlantic that amazingly, The Atlantic published somewhat reluctantly, but they did publish it, where I came to, uh, to Robertson's defense and said, let's be clear here. Uh, let's stop with all the, the fake shock and horror because Robertson is just expressing what everyone already knows the Bible says and that actual Christians believe. And that is that homosexuality is wrong. It's, content, it's condemned by the Bible. So let's not, let's not wring our hands over this and pretend that the Bible doesn't say this. We, you may not like the way you said it. You may have thought that he was a little bit crude in saying it. But you're not really shocked that he said it. So when I came to his defense, I said, nope. What he said is absolutely orthodox Christianity. And more than that, we are moving in the direction of a people who are claiming that they want rights but it's not about rights. They want dominion over this country. And I ended the article with this. Again, this was in 2013. Tolerance is not the same thing as acceptance, and acceptance is not the same thing as an endorsement. The campaign for tolerance has advanced to a campaign to pressure Christians to recant their beliefs and endorse a lifestyle to which they are opposed, conscience be damned. We stand at a crossroads, the country must decide. Is the end game here to be that Orthodox Christians will henceforth have no voice within their own culture, or have we become a nation of bullies, forcing conformity at the expense of free speech and in the name of tolerance? A decade on, I think I was somewhat prophetic. I was warning that these are people who have told us all along that what they wanted was tolerance. Now they want your children. And it's absolutely true that this is the direction they want to go. So the question becomes, how do we get here? Well, this is all part of, a, uh, of, of Marxist tactics. Now, some of you will say, are you trying to tell me that everybody was at the White House celebrating uh, a Pride Day, that these were all Marxists? No. I would argue that many of them don't know a thing about Karl Marx, much less Marx ism but they are being used by the social engineers to bring about sweeping changes in this country and that is because homosexuality and sexual perversion is being used to disrupt the norms in american society in order to annihilate the existing social political and moral paradigms in order to replace it with something else not making this stuff up. Again, this is all open uh, for you to see. And the guy who was the engineer really behind this in a big way, in addition to uh, Antonio Gramsci, Gramsci played a role in this with the development of what we call, what we now call intersectionality, critical theory, Georg Lukash. He was uh, this guy right here, this book, The Destruction of Reason. Uh, he was uh, Hungarian. He was a Bolshevik. Just an out-and-out out Bolshevik, uh, which is to say um, a Marxist, a Leninist, a communist, a socialist. It was all of that. And um, this guy here was, you might call him something of a, he's kind of a Karl von Clausewitz of Marxism. 
Don't know who Clausewitz was. Clausewitz, 1831, posthumously, his wife published on his behalf a book called On War, Vom Krieg. He uh, was a Prussian military theorist who observed the tactics of Napoleon, and his, his theories have become, even to this day, they dominate military thinking. Not the way they maybe once did, but gosh, a generation ago through World War II, everybody knew the theories of Karl von Clausewitz, how to win, how to win in a battle. And he said, this is the way Napoleon did it. This was the brilliance of Napoleon. Vom Krieg on war. It's important to have a Christian worldview. The question becomes, how do we build that? How do we develop that? Oftentimes we have Bible teachers who are very faithful in teaching scripture, but don't ever quite make the connection with the outside world. Other times we have Bible teachers who don't really want to touch certain topics because they're just seen to be too toxic. At tomap.com, you are going to find a wide range of issues being addressed to help you build out that Christian worldview. They're on things from, from suffering, uh, dealing with mental health, to racial reconciliation. These are all issues that you will find at tomap.com, and they'll help you to build out a Christian worldview and to flourish. I hope you learn a lot from the podcast, but you can go beyond the podcast to the courses that we offer at Tome. So I hope you'll take a look at them and sign up. To get access to more than 100 Tome courses, use the code IDEAS. And for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all kinds of courses on a wide variety of subjects. Individuals with expertise, with experience in subjects that will be meaningful to you. So use the code IDEAS and for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all of them. Go to tomap.com. Back to the podcast. Georg Lukács, he's the Karl von Clausewitz of Marxism. He's the military strategist and theorist. And he's a guy, along with Antonio Gramsci, there are others, but he's one of the most important ones along with Gramsci. Uh, but maybe where Gramsci was speaking of cultural Marxism, much more, much more broadly, Lukács was speaking in very specific detail of how to overthrow the existing paradigms in the West. And part of his theory was this, again, like, like Gramsci, he was a guy who understood that, that the conventional Marxist means of overtaking, of overthrowing existing governments and overtaking a society, that is to say a frontal assault with guns, with a revolution, with a coup d'etat. The Russian Revolution wasn't a revolution, it was a coup d'etat. Anyway, you can go read Richard Pipes on that, Russian historian, brilliant stuff. But he said, look, the structure of the West is far too strong. The pillars of Western society are far too strong. The average person respects their government. The average person isn't seething with resentment and wanting to overthrow the government. They have complaints. It's not the same thing as fomenting with deep resentment and a desire to destroy the existing paradigms, to destroy the government. And he understood, as Karl Marx understood, and as Gramsci understood, Gramsci was an Italian um, political theorist. He was imprisoned by, uh, by Mussolini. He wrote these secret notebooks in the 1930s that became the object of worship among Marxists in the West. Well, Lukács, the Hungarian, he said, we have to destroy Christianity first because everything else you're attacking is really just a, is part of the outflow of what Christianity is. Now, there would be some of you who are listening to this and going, well, I'm not a Christian. What do you mean Christianity is the foundation of Western society? If you were born and raised in the West, particularly if you were above, let's say, the age of 30, all the more so, let's say, if you're above the age of 50, you have likely, unless you are in some odd little 
Berkeley-esque, you know, bubble, you likely inhaled deeply of a Judeo-Christian worldview and it formed the basis of your worldview. Somewhere deep inside of you, you probably believe, even if you're an atheist, that you're not prepared to equate human life with animal life. I mean, if you're an atheist and you're going to follow your atheism to its logical conclusions, that is a logical conclusion of atheism. That human beings have no more value than any other animal on the planet. These guys were saying, look, even among unbelievers in Western society, most of them, the structure of their thinking, of their moral outlook is Judeo-Christian in nature. This book right here, little book I got right here, The Suicide of the West, the authors of this talk about this. I don't know that either one of them are Christians. They may be. But this is a point that they're, that they're making in this book. And by the way, this is a point that was also made, this book right down here, Civilization, The West and the Rest by Neil Ferguson, Harvard historian, Oxford PhD. Neil Ferguson argues that as Christianity is declining in the West, um, what you're seeing is the rise of barbarism. And that's because the Christian faith has served as a, a bulwark for centuries against some of the barbarism, much of the barbarism that has engulfed much of the world, that has brought about genocides, that has brought about totalitarian regimes that seemed endless, that's brought about banana republics. The United States has by and large avoided this, not completely, and has also been able to move past its own mistakes like slavery. It can, can deal with national sins like slavery through the Christian faith, which says there can be forgiveness and restoration. Georg Lukács, he said, look, we have to destroy the West, particularly America's Christian foundations. And he decided, and here's where the rubber meets the road, maybe that I'm not the best choice of words, but he decided that the way was through sex education is through sex education. Get that into schools. Because under the cover, the cloak of sex education, you could convince parents that what children are being taught is responsible sexual activity. How to not get diseases. He was trying to implement this in Hungary, but wasn't successful because the regime itself didn't last. So what did he do? He joined the Frankfurt School and uh, the Frankfurt School in Germany. Many of you by now will have heard of it. Maybe you hadn't heard of it five years ago, but you probably have now. The Frankfurt School, which is made up of Marxists who are hell-bent on the destruction of the West. The Frankfurt School, most of the members of the Frankfurt School fled Germany when Hitler gained power in 1933. Where did they go? They went to the United States. They went to New York began having massive influence in the United States on academics in the United States, particularly at Columbia University. And they absorbed a lot of Lukács' ideas regarding sex education. Get that in the classroom, and it's like getting a crowbar beneath Christianity and thus beneath Western civilization as a whole, and you can begin busting it up. I like... I like what um, British writer Rob Slane says about this. This is terrific. So here's what sex education really is. It is not an attempt to educate children about sexual intercourse or to encourage sexual responsibility or to prevent teenage pregnancies. Rather, it is an attempt by the state to sever the link between marriage and procreation to sever the link between parents and their children, and above all, to destroy traditional Christian sexual ethics and the family for good. It is above all about the destruction of traditional Christian sexual ethics and the family for good. That is the goal of sexual education in the West. That is the goal of Marxists in order to bust up Western society because then you begin to break up Western morality. And once Christianity goes, said T.S. Lewis, the whole culture goes. Neil Ferguson quotes in, in uh, Civilization, the West and the Rest, talking about the West. He, 
has a conversation with an anonymous Chinese academic, anonymous for obvious reasons. And this Chinese academic said, we have studied your culture for decades and we've only now finally come to understand the source of its strength. It is the Christian faith. It's why they've targeted it. Did you know that TikTok is banned in China? All the crap that is being pipelined into your child's head on that app, the Chinese themselves do not allow in China. They also regulate how long they actually be on social media. Try to give them educational things and so on. China's not a great country, but they recognize that what they're doing is trying to, I'm banned in China, by the way, <laughs> but they recognize that what they're doing in feeding nonsense through social media, TikTok in particular, to the West and to Western children is they realize that they're undermining our society as a whole. They're weakening us because they recognize that the Christian faith is the source of our strength. And anything they can do to assault that, they're going to do. So what you're seeing at the White House and in schools and in entertainment and all of it is an attempt to destroy existing moral, social, and political paradigms. And this isn't, by the way, really ultimately about sex. It is about power. This is about power. It's about taking power. Sex is being used in order to seize power. Get rid of the stigma that rightfully is associated with homosexuality and the LGBT movement. That was a goal. And the way to do that is to try to mainstream it. In previous generations, it existed, but it existed in the kind of the dark, dark corners of society. It, uh, it, it existed in, uh, in places that people didn't talk about. And they said, you know what we have to do is we have to change the way people talk about homosexuality. Now, these people know it's a perversion. They do know that. They know that it is an attack on God. I love the way Will Durant put it in his 11-volume work on the history of civilization. He's a historian from a generation ago, a couple of generations now I guess he said this in talking about the fall of Greece and the fall of Athens. He said, when the Athenians no longer wanted to give to society, but for society to give to them, when the freedom they longed for was the freedom from responsibility, Athens ceased to be free. Athens ceased to be free. That's the direction we're headed in because we no longer see freedom as having any guardrails on it. We no longer see it as requiring individual responsibility. We're trying to tell uh, you know, all, all women, they have no responsibility for their actions, no responsibility for your choices. Black people, no responsibility for your actions, no responsibility for your choices. And hence the cultural Marxists understood the way to sneak into Western society, our ideology is under the guise, the lie of freedom and privacy. And thus we can mainstream the LGBTQ agenda and thus we can begin to pervert Western sexual ethics and along with it, Western ethics as a whole and along with it, the destruction of our great enemy, the Christian faith. As I've said before, I mean, and as Neil Ferguson uh, has observed at Harvard University that uh, Christianity has served as the bulwark against Barbarism against dangerous ideologies that overtook much of the world, even Europe, but not the United States. And hence the fact that the United States has been seen as a beacon of freedom. But all of that is changing. The other question becomes, where is the church in all of this? Do you ever find yourself? I mean, I think to myself, we have a saying in the South, you know, you can't sling a dead cat without hitting something. In this case, in the South, you can't sling a dead cat without hitting a megachurch. You just can't. They're all over the place. And by megachurch, I'm talking churches that are, say, a thousand or more people. And there are many of them that are much bigger than that. And in America in general, there's a church, you know, within the city centers, there's a church on almost every street corner. How is it that a culture in which, according to Pew Forum, 26% of the population 
self-identify as evangelical Christians. That is to say, they are the people who's spilling my coffee. They're the people who answered in the affirmative to questions like, do you believe there's a heaven and a hell? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? Do you believe this, that, and the other are sins? Do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Do you believe that Satan exists? These kinds of questions. 26% of the American population answered in the... So one in four of Americans who are evangelical Christians, according to that number, and yet our impact on the culture is minimal. How is that possible? I think it has to do with the way Christians engage and the way they understand the issues. And I want to illustrate this with something that I call the British fighting square. Now, again, I'm a historian, and so I... Uh, Sometimes no obscure, obscure things like this. But the British in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, they used something that became quite famous, a military tactic that was called the fighting square, the British fighting square. And that is to say where infantry would get into a square maybe two ranks, three ranks deep with the men in front, you know, on their knees, their rifles pointing outward all the way around the square and the command center right in the middle of the square. And they found that the fighting square was very effective against cavalry in cavalry charges. And it was very, very effective against superior numbers. The British conquered much of Africa using the fighting square against overwhelming numbers. They used it because it was highly organized. And the guys in front, once they fired, we're talking muzzle loading era of weapons that would, that would eventually change. Those guys would move to the back and the guys in the back would move forward and drop to a knee and they would fire and again and again. They'd just keep loading it. It was just a constant rate of fire. And the, so long as the square remained intact, it was, it was almost impossible to break. And Napoleon at Waterloo, he sent his cavalry again and again against the British fighting squares and he couldn't break them. And it led to his defeat. I want to use that in the light of Mark 1230. Mark 1230 says this, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength is just another way of saying with your body. Now I want to illustrate something for you right here in the way I think about this and that relates to the discussion that we're having right now. So this is in Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the British fighting square, well, it was a square, so it had four sides. You know, and the heart, soul, mind, and strength, this is the fourfold person. It's it's the 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 every aspect of of, of a human being. So the the heart forms one side, the heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is to say the body. And so this represents, the square is represented by, um, by each aspect of Mark 1230. Now let's think of some ministries that deal with each one of those. Well, what deals with the with the soul. Well, the institutional church does, you know, with the preaching of the word and with the distribution of the sacraments. None of these others do that. What, what kind of ministries deal with the heart? Well, I think specifically of counseling ministries that do that. And by the way, there's some overlap with, with each of these. There's, you know, there's no exclusivity here. What are some ministries that deal with the body? Well, I think of benevolence ministries. Um, you know, soup kitchens and medical missions teams. They're dealing specifically with the body. And then what deals with the mind? Well, apologetics organizations deal with that. And uh, certainly uh, a, a solid preacher does some of that. My work does some of that, dealing with the mind. But you see, the British Fighting Square only worked so long as it remained a square. If any one of these sides collapsed, the whole thing was done. Now, my argument is this. When the Lord told us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think the church, after 1859, after the publication of The Origin of Species, 
began retreating from this side of the square. And the result was that this side of the square broke and the enemy has been pouring in ever since. And it jeopardized the whole of the square. And that is because we began retreating from, Christianity even began taking on a kind of anti-intellectual element. You've probably met those kind of Christians who are very anti-intellectual. Oh, I don't need to know that. Don't need to worry about that. What was happening at churches after World War II, throughout the Cold War, you would think the churches would occasionally begin addressing issues like Marxism, like socialism, like um, you know, intersectionality, like critical race theory, critical theory, that we would be addressing Black Lives Matter, all these kinds of issues. But the church, by and large, hasn't been dealing with those issues. And the result is that this side of the square of the fourfold person and of the church as a whole has collapsed. And the only way to regain the culture is to rebuild it. There's a very important aspect of all of this. Once the church began moving away from doctrine, from sound doctrine, from the sound preaching and teaching of the word, from exegetical preaching, expositional preaching and teaching, book verse by verse, book by book. The result was that people didn't actually know their Bibles particularly well. And we've moved from being Christians who were rooted in sound doctrine, who were rooted in truth to becoming Christian-ish. Many people who call themselves Christians these days, they're not anchored in anything in particular, certainly not God's word. They are actually blown around by the winds of Christian sentimentality, Christian sentiment, Christian-ish ideas, and hence those ideas Cultural Marxists know are easily hijacked. As I have said, these kinds of things, the church itself can be sock puppeted by Marxists. That is to say, it remains the brick and mortar institution that has a steeple on it, even people up front that have vestments on and who are doing all of the, the things that you would expect a pastor or a priest to do. But at its core, the engine of the church of the gospel, of the Christian faith, which is to say the word of God has been completely removed, or let's just say it's being selectively preached for an agenda and for a particular end. And that is what's happened. So you're wondering, how did we get here? Well, this is how we got here. The square broke. It's just like, you know, you hear the phrase, you know, chain is only as strong as its weakest link. The square is only as strong as its weakest side. And once one side collapses, all the other sides fall with it. So your faith must consist of heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. It must be all of those. And the church itself must be all of those, the fourfold aspects of the human being. And we've neglected aspects of this. And the result is now you're starting to see neglect in the other ones. It's not like the other three sides have remained intact. Well, we're still doing a great job of benevolence. We're still doing a great job with counseling ministries. We're still doing a great job in our pulpits. Nope. We aren't. We aren't. We are seeing, we are seeing children which have traditionally been celebrated and protected as innocents within our culture are now the targets of perversion. There's no question. Benevolence, benevolence has been hijacked, utterly divorced from the gospel. I think that began with the with uh, great society in the 1960s, where a lot of Christians began to think of their tax dollars as their tithe. If your tithe is not coupled with the gospel, it's not a tithe. It just isn't. And I promise you, when the state hands out resources to people, it doesn't say, this comes to you from the good Christian people of the United States of America. That's not what they're doing. It's not a tithe. And how about seeing to the hearts of people? Are we doing a good job there? Counseling ministries are being hijacked in a very big way. Poses as Christian, but it isn't Christian. It increasingly looks like social justice warrior nonsense. And that's what's happening in the pulpits as well, which is the exact opposite of the Christian faith. Social justice 
so-called is about retribution, not about grace, not about forgiveness, not about restoration. It is about vengeance. It is about power. And that has nothing to do with the gospel. And hence the reason that guys like Lukash, he didn't have my, my broken square analogy. And by the way, it is mine. Feel free to use it, but give proper attribution. He didn't have this, but he was thinking like this. How do we breach the square of the West and how do we break it? And he decided the way to do it is through the intellect. And he says, because the Western mind is increasingly weak. They're no longer being taught their history. They're no longer being taught the Bible. They're no longer being taught great Western literature that can put, put rebar straight through a child, giving them strength when the, 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 the winds of adversity blow against them. They're no longer getting that. And the result is that they're vulnerable there because we can hijack the Christian faith and tell them that perversions are in fact Christian. They're good. They're noble. They're true. They're the kinds of things that the men who stormed ashore at Normandy on D-Day were fighting for. I promise you, my father was not fighting for a gay flag hanging on the White House. He wasn't fighting for the kind of sexual perversion that took place at the White House this past week. Wasn't fighting for that. Doubt yours were either. Generations of Western children, Americans, Europeans, have been rightly taught about the Holocaust and about the rise of fascism and a Adolf Hitler. German school children were required before they graduated, they had to go to a concentration camp. They had to see at least one before they graduated high school. I've seen them. I've, I've seen the school children in the camps. I've been to many of the camps myself. I've been to Buchenwald and Dachau several times, Auschwitz a couple of times, Middlebaugh Dora, Mauthausen, others probably. And sometimes you see the school children there. Rightly, generations of school children were taught this, and they were taught the evils of this. They were taught the evils of discrimination, singling people out and seeking to destroy them. You know what is now happening with this movement is if you think, if you think of it like a, like a stampede, you know, all generations of children have all been taught the Holocaust is wrong. What the LGBTQ mafia is doing is it's like one of those old Westerns where they're redirecting the stampede into, you know, in, in another way. They're weaponizing the stampede for something else. And they are now teaching those same children that the victims of the Holocaust were really the LGBTQ crowd. And the persecutors, guess what? They were the MAGA hat wearing people. They're redirecting. Think of the wickedness of this. They haven't been able to completely get away with it yet because there are still a number of Holocaust survivors alive. Not a lot of them, but there are enough that won't go along with that. But they're slowly trying to redirect that and change the narrative of World War II and the heroic efforts of the victors of World War II to being about trans and LGBTQ rights. My wife and I decided to watch recently, to start watching it, it looked like it was interesting on Netflix, a show called Transatlantic. Trans is right. <laughs> Varian Fry was an American who, with the help of American philanthropists, managed to get a number of Jewish intellectuals, artists, performers out of Europe, smuggle them out of Europe. And uh, I thought, you know, this would be very interesting. Um, I'm interested in Varian Fry. There was a movie a generation ago with William Hurt in it that was about Varian Fry. This film, however, does what I've noticed a lot of um, movies are doing these days. They hook you in early on with a story. You get a couple of episodes in and then they reveal to you a sick sort of agenda. They wait until you like it, 
And then they sneak in. In this, they made Varian Fry a homosexual. Varian Fry's two wives and his biographer both say this is complete nonsense. His son has come out, who's obviously a progressive and who didn't know his father by his own admission. Varian Fry died when he was nine. And um, that is to say when his son was nine and uh, he was gone much of the time. But I think the wives would know. You'd think a wife would know if he was gay. The biographer says he's interviewed loads of Varian Fry's friends and colleagues, none of whom have said that he was homosexual. But guess what they've done? The people at Netflix decided we're going to make him gay, and we're going to make him gay to support our sordid agenda. This is cultural Marxism. This is what this is about, and it should offend you. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're not offended by what happened at the White House this past week, if you are not offended by the in-your-face tactics of the LGBTQ mafia, there's something wrong with you, and you should worry. You should worry about yourself and about your own soul. Pedophilia is being mainstreamed. And I'm reminded of, and I will end with another passage of scripture that I encourage you to go and read. And in Ezekiel chapter nine, the Lord tells an angel to go through Jerusalem. Jerusalem had become, these were God's people. These were people who knew the truth. They'd been taught the truth. They'd been warned of the truth. But now they were engaging in sexual perversion and child sacrifice and the worship of other gods. Sound familiar? That's where we are. Bear in mind that Ezekiel was a contemporary with Daniel and also with Jeremiah. Daniel and Jeremiah are taken away into, uh, into exile, but Jeremiah remained to preach and to condemn, to warn in the hope of saving some. But God is foretelling in Ezekiel chapter nine, the punishment, the hammer is about to fall. The ax is about to fall on Jerusalem. And he tells an angel who has a little book and he says, go through the city and put a mark on the forehead of all the people who groan, who grieve over the sin that is taking place in the city. Put a mark on their foreheads. And then it says, that he called forth six executioners, also angels, presumably. And he says, take your swords and go through the city and execute anyone upon whom there is no mark. He says to them that they should begin, they should begin at the altar. They should begin with the house of God. In other words, with the priests. Begin with those people who are leading my people in false worship. Begin with them. Now, you don't have to believe that. You listen to this podcast, you may say, oh, Larry believes in a fairy God. <laughs> you know, you believe what you want. I can point you in the right direction. I can't force you to go in the right direction. I'll just simply tell you that in progressive pulpits, the God of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5 and Ezekiel 9 is not being preached. And he is a real God. And he takes these things very seriously. And, and the desecration of holy things, the God of the Bible, to, I'm preaching to you today, and I really set out to do so, but I feel very passionate on this. The desecration of holy things, the God of the Bible takes very seriously. And if you think he doesn't take seriously the, the war against innocence, the war against children, I'm here to promise you, that he does. Some of you, you're looking for hope. Well, there's much reason for hope. We serve a great God. We serve the God who said, let there be light. So I leave you with this bit of hope. I have said that there are churches on just about every street corner in America that you can't sling in the Southern vernacular a dead cat without hitting a mega church and they're having a minimal influence. That perhaps sounds very depressing, but I think that what's happening is that the Lord is separating the sheep from the goats. If you're groaning over this, if you're grieved by the sin of this nation, by your own sin, by my own sin, then I would say the Holy Spirit is at work in you and you have reason to hope. And I would also say this, it means you're a sheep, by the way, not a goat. 
But I'll also tell you this, Jesus converted an empire with 12. He changed an empire with 12. What could he do with roughly 26% of Americans who say they believe in his word if those people were motivated and equipped to engage the culture? What we're seeing in the culture right now, ladies and gentlemen, is the tail wagging the dog. Part of the Marxist tactic is to make you feel defeated and depressed and demoralized. Do not, do not. We serve a great and mighty God. And I believe that he is prepared now if we <laughs> grieve and groan over these things and we say, here I am, Lord, send me. He's prepared even now to act on our behalf and on behalf of this nation.